0: In Alabama in 2011, we had our major disaster. We had 67 tornadoes in one 24-hour period. You never want to have a disaster sandwiched in a busy news cycle. We were right in between the royal wedding and the assassination of Osama bin Laden. So we got about a day of airplay. We had over 250 people die in that event, and most Americans never heard about it. Maybe they heard about Tuscaloosa, Alabama with one tornado because that happened to be a college town with a football national championship. Outside of that, they didn't realize that the rest of the state was pretty much gone.
1: Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. And Vernice Miller Travis.
2: Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. This is your host, Mike Hancox, and today we'll be sharing the first of two interviews Kiff Scheuer of the Local Government Commission and I conducted with disaster preparedness and recovery consultant Laura Clemens at the 2017 New Partners for Smart Growth Conference. Next week, we'll air the second interview. In light of the recent hurricanes in Florida and Texas, these interviews present important and timely advice on disaster preparedness and recovery, particularly for smaller and more rural communities. My co-host today is Kiff Scheuer from the Local Government Commission. Hello, Kiff. Hey, how are you doing, Michael? Doing great. And our guest is Laura Clemens, resiliency specialist and founder of Collaborative Communities. Welcome. Thank you. So we're going to talk today a little bit about rural communities, how they're impacted by the resiliency issues and hazard mitigation issues in rural communities. So if you want to kick us off?
3: Sure. Yeah, we hear a lot about some of these major events that happen around the world when they happen. Sandy is a big one. Katrina was a big one, certainly. Um, but we don't always hear about uh, the, the the events happening in smaller rural communities, but we do have a sense that those weather events don't restrict themselves to urban areas. So I'd love to hear about what's happening in rural communities with extreme weather, where the impacts are, what kinds of impacts they're seeing, and how it might be different than what we see in urban communities.
0: So there's a lot of philosophical discussion about climate change and climate adaptation. And when I go to conferences, I see a lot of people talking about Katrina and Sandy. It is very disappointing to me because I work in disaster recovery and I see the events that are happening. We're averaging a federal declaration about one a week. And when I hold most audiences and ask people, how often do you think we are having a disaster? They say like one a year, maybe two a year. The last one that I think that most Americans heard about was the flooding in Louisiana. And even there, there's a misconception of, oh, well, they're coastal. That's Louisiana. It floods there all the time. And that was from an extreme rain event. And that is what I see is a major risk to rural communities is extreme rain events and flooding because it doesn't get a name. We don't get to name a system and talk about it for a week as it grows in the Gulf like hurricanes do. We can't track it as it cuts across other countries. That gives us something to hold on to when we can give it a name, right? Then it's dangerous. Then it's scary. And we can really hang our hats on that. A rainy Wednesday is just not that interesting to talk about. And there's not a lot of preparation for it. There's not a lot of warning. It's not even like tornadoes where you know ahead of time that it's headed for you. It's supposed to rain and it ends up raining a lot in a short amount of time. And maybe there are rivers nearby, which oftentimes there are because we love as humans, as animals to be near water. And the river swells very quickly, oftentimes, It's not necessarily raining in the place that's flooding because it will be raining upstream. Texas is a place where I spend a lot of time, rural Texas. And what I see is communities that are nowhere near the rain events, but they're the ones impacted by it, which makes it even more devastating because it wasn't even raining in rural Texas in this area when when they got flooded. They're being impacted by massive amounts of hardscaping in major metropolitan areas. Where So
2: by that, you mean there's a lot of surface that water runs off of hardscaping and it runs into the stormwater system and that creates a lot of downstream volume very quickly. Is that correct? Sure,
0: absolutely. We've done a good job in this country of building dams. However, when you have a place that's seeing a lot of rain everyone's upstream of someone. And I I think we fail to recognize that. So our runoff, our, our goal when it rains in a city is to get the water off our property, off our streets. And if there is a river nearby, it is fantastic to just go ahead and dump that water into the river. Well, several hundred miles away from you in a tiny community that you've never heard of, their river rises very quickly and inundates an entire city. And you have entire neighborhoods being washed away. And so what the message that I would like to get out to people is twofold. One, to small communities that are being hit repeatedly. You're, you're not alone, and you usually know that you're not alone, but you don't know about resources that are available to you, that big cities that are, have huge staffs and lots of money to hire consultants to protect them. The small communities typically don't know that these resources exist And even if they've heard of them, they don't know how to access them or they don't think that they can afford them. Can you tell us
3: uh, some examples of those resources just so we understand what we're looking at?
0: Sure. So the federal government allows a jurisdiction to bring in their own effort to help them understand FEMA policy, which is really confusing. There are giant books of codes of federal regulations that a community is supposed to navigate. Now, if it's New York City who has a powerful state government like New York State who brings in thousands of consultants to deploy into small communities and help, them and give them the advice that they need to fill out their FEMA project worksheets which is where the money that's going to come back into that community to fix things is going to come from is those FEMA project worksheets so I'm a tiny community I've got a city staff of 10 and I get hit by a flood and I have no idea how the FEMA process works because we've never been hit by a disaster before, right? Disasters are happening in places where they've never hit before, right? Because it's raining in places where typically they don't get super heavy rains like we're seeing now on a regular basis. So the first thing is they have no idea other than saying, we need help to the state. And the state says, hey, feds, we need help. Okay, that's good. And they're like, great. Some FEMA will come tell us what to do and they'll take care of everything because they're the experts. And while that is true that FEMA does deploy and offer a wealth of resources and expertise, What they don't realize is I deserve the right to have my own expert on my side of the table that is there to make sure that we are in control of our recovery. We are individually empowered as a small community to dictate what we want to repair, how we want to repair it, and that we have access to very smart experts that can help us visualize how Can we put it back safer, but not just safer? How can we actually make our city a better place to live and make it safer at the same time? Now that gets into complexities that is not FEMA's wheelhouse. And if you don't know that you have the right to bring in your own expert to advise you on these things, you're already starting off way behind. Because FEMA is going to come in like an insurance company, essentially, right? You have a a thing, it got damaged. We're going to pay to fix the thing. We may mention to you that you can harden the thing. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. And that's that. You get your money you've repaired your road or your bridge or you've put some houses back No one was there to give you advice on like how to do it better, how to do it different, to like bounce ideas and say, hey, do you know what they're doing in St. Louis? Do you know what they're doing in Oakland? Do you know what they just did in New York City? Let me share with you the resources of things that you could be doing. And so that's what I mean about the um, helping small communities know what to do. The other piece is for the big cities, there's an inequitable distribution. Big cities that are very powerful, especially in blue states that don't mind twisting that federal government arm and saying we deserve more resources here and being very vocal about it, they get those resources if they demand them. They're there available. So in smaller communities that don't have that strong, powerful DC related advocacy, they end up shorted. And when you're talking about economic, conservative economic values of spending resources wisely, Hazard mitigation is the best way to do that so that the next time it rains, you don't end up in the same situation, again, spending the same money over and over and over again.
2: Right. I'd like to continue along this vein, but I want to step back because we buried the lead a little bit. So I want to come back to this idea that a couple of times a year in the United States, we get these big events that are very, you know, they've weather channels all over them and the media covers them for a month. But what you said earlier was that on average in the United States, we're having a national disaster a disaster declaration about every week. Yes. Okay. So could you explain to the audience what that means in terms of a disaster declaration? And is that a big deal?
0: Sure. In order to get a federal declaration, it's not like a nice, tidy, clear line where if you have this number, this monetary value of damage, you immediately get a declaration. What happens is it's a rainy Wednesday. It rains a lot. It floods your entire community. And, it's beyond your local ability to recover from. So a, a small city government would say, okay, we don't have the financial resources to fix this magnitude of damage. And so they reach out to the state and say, state, we need help. Typically in these events, you've got multiple places that are being hit all at the same time. So they all reach out to the state and say, we need help. And then the state as a government authority says, this actually exceeds our ability to help you. We need federal resources. And they reach out to the president and they make a request for a federal declaration, a major federal declaration. And when they make that request, the president has the authority to grant or not your declaration. If they approve your request for federal assistance, it opens up a wealth of of federal monetary resources to you you get reimbursement for your damages and that's what is the saving grace when you you don't have the money to be able to this not totally be catastrophic to your annual budget right
2: so so obviously these are very significant weather related events that are causing significant damage that's beyond the capability of the local government and or the state government to really adequately deal with this is probably maybe something you don't have but do you have any sense of how much that's increased over time so now we're saying. It's happening once a week on average. Is that different than it was 20 years ago?
0: Absolutely. I think that our small jurisdictions are financially asked to do a lot more with a lot less just because of the nature of funding availability across the board. So you've already got a jurisdiction that is experiencing financial difficulties, right? What's changed with the weather patterns is these rain events Some people call them extreme rain events, some people call them rain bombs. They don't fit regular patterns. So where it used to rain, maybe in the context of rain, we used to get two or three inches over the course of a day, we're getting six inches in an hour. And so I talk to communities every day that say, well, we live in a rainy state, it rains here all the time. It didn't rain like this ever before. Even in Alabama, we're used to rain, rains all the time. Two years ago on Christmas, it rained consistently for three inches an hour over the course of four straight hours without letting up we weren't anywhere near rivers but there were rivers running through the roadways there were rivers in places that didn't weren't near water you know yesterday there were entire roadways completely washed away cars washed into what became streams because water has to go somewhere and and so it's these rain bombs that are very centralized and very focused and I think that one of the reasons that we don't talk about this is one, they don't have a tidy name. Like it's just rain. So it's hard to like make that sexy and interesting for the news. Two, you know, it's hitting rural places, which don't, that's not a sexy thing to talk about either. I mean, who really cares about, you know, central Mississippi or Arkansas or Texas? Like if it's Austin, maybe we could sell that on the news. But, you know, these small communities, they get really disregarded. And and so I think that I've seen, because of this inequitable distribution, Americans are very generous. If they know to donate to something to help people, they will. But right. if it's not on the news, and I don't know that there's, you know, 100 houses gone or 200 houses or 1,000 houses or 100,000 houses that have just disappeared overnight, I don't know that there are children in need. I don't know that there are adults in need.
2: And it, there's probably a big media bias in terms of it's just easy to report from the cities. They have reporters there. They, you know what I mean. It's, it's not easy for uh, news agencies to go and report from rural Texas. It's just harder, right? You got to travel. You got to be there, and the media is just not biased that way. So I could see easily why a lot of rural events don't get adequate news coverage?
0: There are a lot of legitimate reasons. In Alabama in 2011, we had our major disaster. We had 67 tornadoes in one 24-hour period. You never want to have a disaster sandwiched in a busy news cycle. We were right in between the royal wedding and the assassination of Osama bin Laden. So we got about a day of airplay. We had over 250 people die in that event, and most Americans never heard about it. Maybe they heard about Tuscaloosa, Alabama with one tornado because that happened to be a college town with a football national championship. Outside of that, they didn't realize that the rest of the state was pretty much gone. And so we didn't get a lot of assistance that we needed from generous American donations, right? We have big hearts and we give generously when we know to give. And then you flip it to Joplin, which was a terrible tornadic event. It hit on a slow media cycle. It got weeks of sustained coverage in the middle of you know nowhere they got a tremendous amount of outpouring of resources to them and they were able to rebuild back in a very robust way because these experts that don't normally show up for rural america showed up for them and i've watched what a difference it made for joplin it's been spectacular to watch in the same sense it breaks my heart that alabama didn't get the opportunity to build back better places that are safer so how do we tackle
3: that i mean we We don't control the media. We don't, you know, some of that generosity, we could, you know, try and elevate stories. But what can communities do? Let's talk about some of the strategies that communities can engage in proactively to bring more, to be aware that they have this resource. And then during the crisis, what are some of the strategies, examples you've seen of some really great rebuilding resiliency?
0: If you live in a small community, whether you're just a citizen or you're a member of the city council or the local government, If you live in a small community, the first thing that you need to do is know that you need to be proactive in bringing on board a consulting firm that is available to give you resources when a disaster hits you. You can put out an RFP. There are very strict procurement guidelines that you have to follow that you probably don't understand the complexities of. So you need to get someone that can help you understand first you got to understand the the procurement hoops you've got to jump through in order to bring this, this group on board or these individuals on board. Put out an RFP and say, we want someone for the next three years on standby in case we have a disaster. We haven't had one yet. Cool. You may never need them. Wouldn't that be great to just never need disaster assistance? However, if something bad happens, it's like an insurance plan, health insurance plan. If something bad happens, you've got smart people that do this every day that can spring to action and show up at your door and say, what do you need here? here's how let's, we can move forward together. So that's number one. Even if you think you don't need it, go ahead and put out a request for proposals and put it out to the large cities, right? That's the other thing that happens in small communities. They put out these RFPs in their local newspaper and there's not a local consulting firm that has this expertise. But if you if you find a major metropolitan area, a Houston or a Dallas or a New York City or a St. Louis, right? These find your closest major metropolitan area or any major metropolitan area because the consulting firms are national. We We will go after work anywhere. It's something that my company does, Collaborative Communities. There are big giant firms that do this. They're little tiny firms. It would be great if you could get a minority, small woman-owned business. That's also a great thing that the feds like to see, but have a firm in place that can jump to action when the bad thing happens and and help protect your interest as you move through what a disaster recovery looks like for your community. That would be the number one thing that people are not doing, that they could do today, put that RFP out, have it be a three-year contract, and you just carry on your daily business. You don't pay these firms if you don't need them. But if you wake up on Tuesday as a mayor and you're trying to figure out what do we do, you've got somebody that's coming to help.
2: So, so why don't you think people are doing that? Why are they not? Doing that? that seems very logical.
0: Well, why do people not have a retirement plan? Because we just live in the now. And I, if I don't need somebody right now, we just don't think about the future. I mean, that's sort of the strange nature of being a human. We have this ability to think ahead, but it seems bizarre to plan ahead, you know? And so when the disaster hits, I'm so burdened by having a staff of only 10. And by the way, their houses are washed away or hit by the tornado or on fire. No one can really think about this more important component of like, should we have somebody else in here helping us? Nah, we got FEMA, we're good. Let's just let them do their thing and they'll tell us if we need to know something. And that takes the ownership off of you because at the end of the day, you need to take some some responsibility about being educated and not just relying on someone else who may or may not have your community's best interest at heart. You, at the end of the day, are the one that is responsible for your community. You're the mayor, you're the city council. We have a lot of wonderful elected officials, judges, people that are in a position to say, hey, I heard a podcast. Have we thought about this? And the answer usually is no. I mean, that's why I show up super late, usually very late in the process, where there's already millions of dollars of missed opportunity of how these small communities could have, again, not just been made to be safer, but they could pivot into how this folds into their economic development strategies. How are they attracting new businesses, right? How do they build new houses or get a new factory to move to town? Factories don't really want to move to places that are dangerous, right? So this is about economic development. This is about a housing strategy. This is about where your schools are located, right? This is about the safety of your neighbors.
2: Right. And I think people often oftentimes don't think that they they need an advocate to deal with another government agency, but absolutely would be like it's a genius idea. I had a friend, his business was if your house burned down, he would work with your insurance company for you. He would protect your interests with the insurance company. And he used to joke with me, if there's a fire in your house, you call me, then you call the fire department. Right? <laughs> so I just you're right, because you're never in that situation. If you have a professional who knows what all the rights are, what all the opportunities are, what all the things you could do, having that on your Rolodex and having it ready to go seems like that's like a no brainer. Everybody should be doing that.
3: Well, and how much related to that, because it's all about forecasting and it's also about setting a new vision for the future, this is relatively new information that the frequency of events is increasing, the duration, the intensity. And so if this is the one time I'm going to have this event in my community, well, yeah, okay, so I didn't do the greatest job. But if it's going to happen every five, ten years or less, then it becomes more critical. But that knowledge isn't out there, as you said at the beginning of the program. So how do we both increase the awareness that this is going to be happening with some frequency, so I better start integrating it in my planning, and then how do I use it as a lever point?
0: Well, my least favorite phrase that I hear thrown around all the time is we want to talk about a 50-year storm and a 100-year storm and a 500-year storm. We have to stop talking with that language. It was developed a very long time ago looking at histories of events. I think it was a ridiculous concept to begin with. I think that it's even less relevant today than ever because what has happened in the past is no longer a good predictor of what will happen in the future. We see that with a lot of things. And weather events are a place where things are changing very quickly and we are not patterning for them. We are not projecting the right attitude to our level of risk. Now, insurance companies are thinking about this. You mentioned your friend in the insurance that sort of is that middleman, which is great. That's exactly what we do. It's like going to court without your own lawyer. You're like, I'm sure there's a judge and there's a lawyer on that side of the table and I'm sure it'll all work itself out, right? The system is in place to protect me. Well, yes, and you still need a lawyer sitting on your side of the table. Someone that understands the system and the complexities and the language. And by the way, policy is not super clear, black and white, it's interpretable. And so when we in Alabama were told, no, this is not eligible to be done through policy, the truth is that policy doesn't say exactly you can repair this road in exactly this way it gives some guidance some guidelines and somebody interpreted it one way and if you have an expert on your side of the table they may be able to help it be interpreted a different way stop using the broken language about thinking oh it's a 500 year storm it's a thousand year storm and um, i work with uh, some dutch folks and they said we were hit by a 1500 year storm three times in five years i was like well i think you should probably stop calling it a 1500 year storm then And the same for our cities. Stop obsessing with the idea of the 100 year rain event. Like it doesn't even mean anything anyway. it's a probability. It's a chance. And my attitude is I'm not really a gambling person to begin with. I'm not a person that loves going to Vegas. And I feel like a lot of mayors and city council members and residents probably would not be feeling super confident and saying like, well, I mean, what are the odds we're going to have something bad happen? I mean, I see it. It just happened over there and it happened over there and it happened over there, but it hasn't happened to us yet. So we're probably good. Again, putting out an RFP and having somebody there to protect your rights, if something bad happens, you're paying $0 to have them sitting on standby. You never need them, Great. You need them. They're there.
2: So that was that's really fantastic uh, information. I think that that like that's worth listening to the whole podcast for a year for a community that they did just what you what you said. We're running a little short on time. So where else can people go? Communities go to learn what they should be doing to be
0: prepared. The FEMA website is a, a wealth of resources if you can figure out how to navigate it. The federal government is not great at building. User-friendly websites. So I will say there is a tremendous amount of information there. Um, it certainly should be used as a resource. I would say that um, reaching out to communities that have been hit by a disaster, even if they're nowhere near you, do some googling. Find out if you're if you're worried about floods. Google and see who has just been hit by a flood. There's communities in every single state that are being impacted. If it's fires that is your thing that you're keeping an eye on if it's tornadic events if it's hurricanes the risks that we know of we're comfortable planning for it's the risk that you don't know about that will bite you right and that's where these extreme rain events are coming in is they're slamming into people Uh, i do want to throw in one last thing which is everybody always says yeah how do we pay you? We, we've got a consultant. Let's say you have to spring to action. Where does that money come from? The work that any consultant does on your behalf, navigating the system of a disaster, if it's a lawyer that's giving you procurement advice or it's a, a an engineer or a designer or a landscape architect, any of those experts that are working to help you navigate the disaster and the recovery process and hazard mitigation, that is all reimbursable by the federal government under your project worksheets that you're going to be filling out. if you When you have this disaster it's reimbursable. Typically, it's at 75% full reimbursement. And some disasters that are really big, like Sandy, go up to 90%. If you think, oh gosh, these consultants, $100 an hour, $200 an hour. Yes, but your out-of-pocket cost is only a quarter of that. And it is worth it because the money you're leaving on the table, it's not a little bit of money. It will typically double or triple the amount of money that you're going to have access to for your repairs. So it's really important to get you a consultant that is sitting on standby. Again, there are big firms, there are little firms, put it out, out an RFP, get it into the major newspapers or online at these, in these big cities, even if you're nowhere near them, get somebody in. There are lots of consulting firms that would love to come give you a pitch. You can call me up. I'm happy to come and for free, give you advice on, you're going to have to RFP and I'm going to have to compete for the work. That's legally required by the feds. There are plenty of firms that will come pitch you. We we want to help protect people. And, you know, this is what we do for a living.
2: Yeah. And I think that I, I always tell people a lot consultants that uh, if a consultant can, you know, generate a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of revenue in your case or a million dollars worth of revenue, it's irrelevant what they're making, right? To some degree. So people get lost in that, oh, they, they're high priced, $100 an hour. You're not paying for the time. You're paying for their knowledge, right? You're
0: paying for them to protect you.
2: You're paying, yeah, you're paying for them for all the, the lifetime of learning that they've done to be prepared to help you.
0: It's going to equal more place. money for your city. Right.
2: So unfortunately, we're out of time. So Laura, thank you so much for your thank time. Thank you so much. And thank you for all the work that you do.
0: It's been a real pleasure. Thank you.
2: And thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio.